First John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And I would ask that you would stand as we read from God's Word this morning, and then we will see what he has to say to us as we go through this text. This is what First John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 says. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Father God, once again we come before you and we recognize our need for you in our lives. We recognize that need because uh, we left to ourselves would be filled with hatred and because of that hatred we would see actions of murder and strife, discord, Lord, uh, sins uh, of speaking out against our fellow brothers and sisters both in you and those that are in this world. And Lord, we recognize that that is not the level that you've called your children to live like. Lord, at the beginning of this chapter, we have recognized that your Father has lavished on us the love that only you can bring. And it's because of that love that we can be called children of God, because that is what we are. And so, Lord, I pray that the children of God in this place would recognize who they are, and yet would not just speak of that through words or by their tongue, but through action and sacrifice. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are classified, who are characterized by love. You said that your people would be known by their love. And Lord, I pray for this church that we would be seen as a people that love one another and love those who are hurting, who love those who are not even in our fellowship, but who are living their lives apart from you. Lord, our mission is to love you to the point of transformation, to love each other in this house to the point of sacrifice. And to love our neighbors to the point of action. Father, I pray that that would not just be a banner that we hang from our ceiling, but it would be something that would come from the very depths of our heart, that we would be on this mission of love, so that you would be brought glory, that people would be brought to you, and that your renown would be made famous, not only here in Sugar Grove, but to the uttermost parts of the world. We pray these things only in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. How would you rate your love life this morning? 
How would you rate it? Now, before I get you looking at your spouse or your significant other and and asking that question, think of all aspects of the love life that you have. How is your love life with God? As Keith was just sharing, do you love God that he is by far the most important thing in all of your life? How would you rate that? If you're married here this morning, how is your marital love life? Your relationship with your spouse? Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, do you love and lovingly submit and honor your husbands as the head of the home? How about you as children? Anyone who finds themselves in their parents' home, do you honor and respect and heed the words of your parents? And in doing so, show your love for them. Parents, do you love your children to the point that you are willing to sacrifice, to care, to many times put their needs above your own? Do you love them even in the small ways of getting down on the floor and playing a game with them or listening to them share their heart because of a broken relationship? Do you love? Recently in a Washington Post article, There was a survey that was done that said most Americans, in fact almost three quarters of all Americans, are dissatisfied with their love life. Now it was talking more of a romantic love, but it was saying that we as an American people are unhappy with where we find ourselves on the issue of love. Now the writer of this article must have been a music lover because each of the headings as I was reading it spoke of a different song that then he would address in the paragraphs that were to follow. He first started out and he said that we're looking for love in all the wrong places. And for a couple paragraphs, this individual spoke about how, where we find love and and where we shouldn't find love and how that has changed over the years. The next thing that he brought up was that not only are we looking for love in all the wrong places, but that we find ourselves looking for this love because of the power that love has. And it speaks about how a person can be changed when they fall in love. That a person can become a different person, can have a different focus on life, can be changed because of the gravity and the greatness that love can can have as it takes place in the life of an individual. And then he goes on and he says, but then we also must remember that there is the power of love, but love also bites. Sometimes love takes something away from us. When a relationship is broken, when when we find ourselves uh, not falling in love, but maybe in essence out of love, the hurt and the pain that comes when we struggle with the issues of a broken relationship. Uh, a relationship that finds itself not as on fire as it was once ago. And he finishes up and he says, but what Americans are all looking for is that higher love. And he goes on, and again, not speaking to anything religious, he articulates this idea that we are searching for something that will bring us a hope, that will bring us a contentment, that will bring us a purpose. And he says that's the type of love that Americans are looking for and that's the type of love that they have not found. And as a result of that, he says, it is time that we learn how to love. 
I don't know about you, but I could always learn more about how to love. Loving isn't an easy thing. Oh, we love to be loved. Oh, you don't have to teach me that. Someone gushing over me, someone taking care of my needs, someone ministering to me, someone putting themselves, uh, uh, putting me over themselves and my desires and my hopes and aspirations over their own. That's easy. That doesn't take any practice to receive love, but to give love. Oh, that is a different story. You see, uh, the reason why Americans have such a difficulty in finding real love is because they are looking for a false love. It's a love that takes care of self. It's a love that puts my needs over others. It's a love that seems to pursue everything about me instead of those around me. And so it's true. Americans can say, I haven't found love because you haven't done what you need to for me. You didn't take care of my needs. You didn't meet the needs and the desires that I have. And because of that, I don't feel love. And yet what John is going to articulate today is something that we can take into our romantic relationships. It can take place in our family relationships. It can go into our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it can be something that we can take and transform the lives of those who are around us. But it's not a love that we will find in and of ourselves. But it's a love that can only be found by God himself. And so today, I want to bring out what I believe what John is saying is, bring me that higher love. Give me the love that I'm looking for. I won't be disappointed when I turn to God and pursue the love that he has for us. And so today, he wants to ask us a couple questions. How is your love life? How's your love life with your God in heaven? How's your love life with those around you? How is your love life with the unbeliever, unbelieving neighbors and, and friends that you have? And he's going to speak about it this morning. So in light of our scripture this morning, I want to explore four truths this morning. And the first one is, is not even found in the text, but I think it's of great importance that we look at it. And the first point that we have this morning to understand John's words is that we are to be reacquainted. We need to be reacquainted with the language of love. Now, when I speak about that, I don't want you to think about uh, the famous uh, Christian book by Gary Chapman that we need to learn the five love languages. It's a, it's a great book and, and it has a place, but not here in John's uh, write, writing to us this morning. Nor am I speaking about the late 80s or early 90s Christian song that I remember Sandy Patty singing that we need to speak a love that is true in any language. I'm not talking about that either. But what I'm speaking about is the language of love. What is love? And how do we describe love? Now, when we speak about it as Americans in the English language, we say we love something. And that's the only word we can use. Let me give you an example. I love my three boys. I love them. But I also love a great pizza. I love my wife, Amanda. I really love her. I also really love the Cubs. I love studying, especially American history. 
and understanding it and nuancing it and trying to understand what those guys were thinking back in the day and, and, and the greatness of their thought and their direction for this country. But I also will tell you, I love the word of God and I love Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you would know because you know me which one of those things that I love the most in a contrast of one another. I'll tell you, I would give up pizza in a heartbeat for my boys. I would renounce the Cubs to keep my wife. And I would uh, give away all that I have as a citizen of the United States so that I could be a citizen of the Lord's. But you know what? My word, love, doesn't help. If you didn't know me and if I didn't add a whole bunch of really, really, reallys and things like that, you wouldn't know the distinction that I'm making in regards to love. And so when we look at a passage like this, we can look to John and say, of course, John, I love like you're telling me to. If you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus has a conversation with Peter. And he's restoring Peter. And three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And in our English versions, it makes no sense because what Peter says is, yes, I love you. Well, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do. It's like Jesus has a hearing problem. Unless we look to the original language when Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know I phileo you. Jesus says, you love me with the love that only can come from my Father in heaven. And Peter says, no, Jesus, I love you like a brother. Our English language keeps us from understanding on this subject of love what John is saying. So very quickly, and I mean quickly, we're going to reacquaint ourselves with four terms that are used in this subject of love. You need to understand the Greek language is a very descriptive language. And when it came to love, there were no greater lovers of love than the Greeks. They had gods and goddesses of love. They built temples and worshipped in those temples because of love. And so it's no doubt that they would come up with not one, but four important terms when it comes to love. The first one is an eros love. That's E-R-O-S just a simple way of, of uh, spelling that. This speaks of a passionate love, a romantic love. Many times it's used as a terminology for a sexual love. It is the uh, word, the Greek word, where we get the uh, words erogenous um, and uh, other words like that. This is the idea of a, of a passionate and uh, a love that, that transpires between two lovers, Never in the Bible is this word used, but not because it's not used in the Bible should we ever think that this love is sinful. A husband and a wife should have an eros love. It's a love that they're passionate about one another. Uh, this is not a love that you would have for your children. This is not a love that you would have for a friend. This is a love that you would have for a person, which the Bible makes very clear this type of love needs to take place in a marriage setting. The second one is the, is the word, the Greek word, storge. S-T-O-R-G-E is the best way to uh, spell it in the English language. And the storge type of love is a natural love, a familial love. This is the love that we have for one another. It's known as a natural love. 
Meaning, the love that we have when we look out at our uh, brothers and sisters of humanity and our heart breaks when we see someone hurting. Think about this, when you watch uh, television and uh, the old actress Sally Struthers comes on and she talks about, I don't know if it's Feed the Children or whatever it is, and you see uh, malnourished children in Ethiopia and other parts of Africa, and and there's this part of you that just wells up with, uh, my heart goes out to them. The Greeks called that a storge love, a natural love, that you don't want to see anyone hurting. There's a compassion to those And they would use this word storge to uh, explain to us what it means. Now, this word is used twice in the New Testament. Write these passages down. Romans 1.31 and 2 Timothy 3.3. Now, both of these passages speak about us being without storge, without a natural love. But nonetheless, it explains that uh, this is a love that we must have. The next one that we have is the word phileo, P-H-I-L-I-E-O, phileo. Uh, This word is used 45 times in the New Testament. And this speaks of a close friendship, and not a romantic love, but a brotherly love. Thus, the name of uh, the or the the name that uh, the city of Philadelphia is known for is the city of brotherly love. If you guys uh, didn't know that, now you know. When you go on Jeopardy, that's where that comes from. Now, this term is used, as I said, forty-five times in the New Testament, but it's used in positive ways and in negative ways. Jesus spoke about this phileo love when he went to the grave of Lazarus. And he cried, and the people around him said, look how much he loved, he phileo, his brother Lazarus. So Jesus loved Lazarus as a close friend, not in an eros way, not in a a storge way, kind of a generic kind of affection, natural affection, but with a deep affection that he would have for his own brother. But it's also used in the negative And it's used in uh, the book of Matthew when it speaks about the Pharisee who loved to stand up in the synagogue and pray, as Jesus says, like a hypocrite. He loved it. And so this term is used both in the negative and the positive. Now the final word that we must become acquainted with, the one that we will see this morning, is the word agape. This is a selfless and sacrificial love. It is used 320 times in the New Testament. And it always, always, always is spoken about God's love for us, and it never speaks about its origin coming from us back to God. We do not agape love God or anyone else without it first coming from God himself. And so this love, uh, Bible scholars would say, is a love that only Christians can have. Because apart from a relationship, an abiding walk with Jesus Christ, we would never agape another individual because it would be foreign to us best defined write this in your uh, outlines best defined agape love is a self-sacrificing a self-sacrificing caring commitment a self-sacrificing caring commitment that shows itself a self-sacrificing caring commitment that shows itself in the highest good in the highest good of the one loved. 
It's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in the highest good of the one loved. This is the kind of love we are to show our spouses. This is the kind of love we are to show back to God. This is the kind of love we are to show our children. We are to show our neighbors. We are to show uh, to our co-workers. But it goes even farther than that because Jesus used this word agape when he says, love your enemies. What, Jesus? Sacrifice? Care? Be committed to our, our enemies? To the point that I would show itself, that it would show itself in the highest good of the one that is loved and not the lover. This is the word that John is speaking about. And so once we understand that, it brings us to a second point. Now we're reacquainted with the words that John is using. This is a different kind of love than the run-of-the-mill American love that loves pizza and the Cubs and American history. This is a different love. It is a higher love than we've ever seen. And so next we are reminded about our lack of love. We have a lack of love. In our world, we live in a place not marked with love, but hatred. Think about the newscast that you watched the other day, or maybe even this morning or last night, and tell me how many love stories were spoken about. Usually those love stories only are about a 30-second blip at the end of it just saying, just so you know, our, our world hasn't gone too quickly to hell yet, and so let us tell you about the little Boy Scout who helped the woman in need. Or let's talk about uh, the individual who helped in the time uh, of great distress and was the Good Samaritan. But that's never how it starts. It starts about who was murdered. Who's been raped? Who's been beat up? Who has uh, had the issue of racism or bigotry brought in their lives? Our newspapers and our newscasts are filled with this idea that something that we know that we lack love. And so we understand and know that not only do we lack love, but in any kind of lack of love produces hatred. Remember, John uses contrast. If you don't love, you hate And so let me give you another definition on the word hatred that we'll learn about today. The opposite of love, hatred, is a selfish, insensitive attitude. It's a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself, a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in the degrading of others, in the degrading of others as you seek your own interests. As you seek your own interests. This is seen in the thinking, I will help you if it doesn't cost me anything. I'll be willing to help change your tire if it means I'm not going to be late to the ball game I'm going to or late uh, to the meeting that uh, I need to be a part of. I'll help you, I'll serve you If it makes me look good, if I can walk away and tell everybody how great of a guy Tim is because I'm such a helpful guy. Look how humble I am. I'm so proud of it. Look at this. Look at what I've done. Is this the type of way that you love? John says this is hatred. 
Now notice how he does it. How does he deal with this? How does he deal with this lack of love with us as Christians? First of all, he gives us a message that we have known from the beginning. Notice our text in verse 11. He says the following. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Right now in the Bedal house, we are dealing with simple educational principles. ABCs, one, two, threes. And every once in a while, they'll throw uh, some addition and subtraction into the mix. And we're learning this. Now, why are we learning this? Because these are the basic foundational things that we need to know uh, in our educational system so that we'll be useful as we grow up. Well, just as those are important in the educational system, what John is saying is the message that you've heard ever since Jesus came, And as he's been teaching us all throughout, I want you to know the foundational thing that he has taught us over and over and over again is we should love one another. I'll tell you how disappointing that is when we walk around with our PhDs. Look at where I've graduated from. Look at what I've done. And then someone says, well, can you add two plus two? What does that equal? And the the doctor says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? It's foundational. How can you not know that simple truth? And what John is saying is understand this. Just because you think you're so smart, because you've been around God so long, especially speaking to the false teachers, you think you've got this close relationship with God, then how can you say you're so intimate with God and yet not do the foundational things that Jesus Christ has taught us to do? This is the message. This is where it begins. So you can say how smart you are, how great you are, how wonderful your relationship with God is, but unless you love one another, you've blown it. You've proven nothing. And he says this is from the beginning. A contrast to the newfangled theology that these Gnostics had, John says we've been preaching the same stuff over and over and over again. It's so simple that you smart people haven't gotten it. But notice, he goes on in verse 12. And he says there's a message, love one another. This is what Christians are called to do. It's basic. And he goes on and he says, now notice, I want to give you an illustration of what happens when we don't love one another. And he shows us a murder that takes place between brothers. Verse 12, this murder that takes place between brothers. He says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. In verse 12, he takes us back to the beginning of civilization. Turn in your Bibles for a moment. Hold your finger in 1 John and turn in your Bibles to Genesis. So all the way to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4. And we are given an understanding, and John does it with perfect clarity. There's no mistakes. There's no uh, misunderstanding of the text. John articulates clearly what is addressed in Genesis chapter 4. And this is what we see. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we have the following. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. It sounds pretty good. But it says, Abel brought the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
That sounds better. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So angry was, uh, sorry, so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? It notices that something's not right. Just so you notice that, not right or accepted of Cain's gift. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Verse 8 says, Now Cain said to his brother, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I do not know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Let's stop there. Go back to 1 John. Here's the example. You don't love, then you hate. And hatred left unchecked because sin is crouching at our door can turn into murder. Now why would that happen? In a world that involved mom and dad and two boys, what would cause the one son to kill the other? Was it the environment? No. Was it a learned behavior? No. It was because Cain lacked love for his brother. Well, why would he lack love for his brother? Why would he fail? Notice what it says. He failed to love him. Why would he do that? It says because he belonged to the evil one. Notice there, when it says he belonged to the evil one, it gives us an idea of the kind of hate of good that Cain had. The phrase there, uh, belong to the evil one, speaks about an evil that is an active engagement against that which is good. Cain hated everything about Abel's goodness, about his righteousness, about the favor that God had for him. And Cain became more passionately evil, and that passionate evil became passionate anger, And the motive said it was because Abel was righteous. And so we know the emotion and the decision to become jealous over this offering became the motive for his murder. And so Cain gets really angry. And not only does he get really angry, not only does he leave it in his heart, but he takes it out on his brother. He becomes so jealous, he murders his brother Abel. Now notice the phrase there, he he murdered is the Greek word, and it's no ordinary word, but it literally means he butchered his brother. None of this business that he took a pillow out in the field and quietly suffocated him. But Ken Wiest, uh, a great uh, word uh, scholar, speaks of this, that this is how you would kill an animal that you hated. He gutted his brother. Why? Because his brother was righteous. And he was not. I want you to remember that. Because that's of great importance in the next point. 
Because he goes from this illustration, and we're not to pull everything from that illustration. That's John's intention in the text. But it leads us to another point, and that is that there's this murder involving brothers, and it shows us mankind's hatred for believers. John wants the readers to, be, to not be surprised. Notice what he says. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Now, why would the world hate you? The same reason why Cain hated Abel. Because God finds favor in you. And you live that way. Hopefully as believers we are walking around this world with a smile on our face, with joy and contentment in our hearts. And someone says, why are you happy amidst your trials? Why are you happy amidst the circumstances of your life? And you say, because God loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's that joy and it's that peace that comes from that that allows us to sing this morning, I'm resting in Jesus. What does that say to the unbeliever that you're speaking to? I'm close to God. And they begin to recognize that they're not. Now notice this is not a in-your-face. Nowhere in the text in Genesis does it say that uh, Abel acted towards his brother like na-na-na-boo-boo, God loves me and he does not love you. (laughs) He doesn't do that. But it's the mere fact that Cain knows that that his brother was loved by God and that he was accepted by God. And instead of doing what God had required so that he could be loved by God and be accepted by God, what does Cain do? He says, I want to have religion on my own terms. I want to do it my way. And so you know what? I'm not going to do it your way, God. And as a result of that, hatred and jealousy fills the heart of the individual, Cain. Now you say, Tim, the world hates me? I, I don't see that. This is something that not only John talks about, but he had heard it from his Jesus. Jesus said, this world will hate you because it's hated me. This world will persecute you just as it has persecuted me. Now you say, Tim, I live in Yorkville, and that's where the good people live. And no one hates me. In fact, I'm one of the nice guys. They they talk about me. People come and borrow my uh, tools, and, and, and people wave and say hello, and they smile when they see me. I'm not hated by the world. Let me ask you this. When was the last time some of you Yorkvilleites in the place where only people love Have you unapologetically and without compromise proclaimed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus says that gospel will split up families. That gospel will separate brothers. That gospel will separate friends. And so you think you're so popular, you think you're so loved, and you think you say, well, I've got this new kind of Christianity that allows me to be loved by the world and to hold true to the things of Scripture. Let me tell you something. You're either hating one or you're loving the other. It's either or. Don't think that you can accomplish, please hear me very clearly, that you can accomplish what Jesus couldn't. Jesus couldn't be who he was and have a sinful world fall in love with him. So if deity couldn't do that, and I know I'm walking some fine lines here theologically, if deity couldn't do it, what makes you think in your finite ability that you can do that? I can have Christianity and everybody's going to like me. No, John says they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. 
And the question is, if you're living out what the Christian life is all about, inevitably, people are going to struggle with you. They may not tell you. They may not murder you as Cain did. That's the final result that takes place. But there will be a growing jealousy and hatred. Unless, barring the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, enlighten their hearts and minds and says, I want what they have. And I'm not going to try to get it my way but I'll do it on the terms of Jesus Christ. And so this hatred. Now you say, Tim, why would John bring this up? John is the perfect person to bring this up. John, the apostle of love, history tells us, had spent years on the island of Patmos before he wrote this letter. And why was he on the island of Patmos? Was it a vacation? No, Patmos was an island for exiles, People that the world didn't want anything to do with, they would just send them off, kind of like how Australia first was settled. Send all the prisoners there. Leave them there. They can't get off the island, and if they do, they'll die on the way back to the shore. And so leave them there. And during that time, because of the evil emperor, and because he hated Christianity wanted to see John suffer. And so he dips John, history tells us, in burning, boiling oil. And John knows, and John sees how much the world hated him. Why? Because he told bad jokes? Because he didn't have a good personality? No, because he professed Christ. And so John understands and recognizes the idea that the world will hate him. He's seen it. He's lived it. And he says, don't be surprised. You start living for Christ, people are going to start hating you. When my brother gave a testimony, it's amazing, uh, before he died, he gave about a a 25-minute testimony just two weeks before he died at a camp, and it was an accident caught on tape. And my brother was one of the most popular kids in our school until his junior year when he got serious about Jesus Christ, and he talks in incredible terms as a teenager the death of his popularity because it meant more to him that Jesus be elevated than his own standing. And he says, I tell you, it wasn't a day that would go by that another friend wouldn't say, you know what, you're not any fun anymore. You know what, you don't live like you used to. And because of that, I'm going to go find someone else. You start living for Christ, And this world will fight you every step of the way. And they'll do it not because they love you, but because they hate you and the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. Now you say very quickly, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, but Tim, I may hate, but I would never murder. But notice what John says. He says, anyone in verse 15 who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. I want us to recognize something as believers. Moving away from the world, John moves to us. And he says there's something that is totally incompatible with the believer. And that is the following. You cannot hate. Because if you hate, you murder. Why? It's the same thing that Jesus articulates in Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus says you can't look lustfully on a woman in your heart and not think that you haven't lived out the act in the physical. You can't have deep feelings of hatred deep inside of you and not think that those won't come out. Out of what a man thinks, so he does. 
And so if you think, well, I just have these hatred, thoughts of hatred, they'll never come out, then you make God's word lie and not be truthful. And we do this with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We do this with uh, people that have hurt us or offended us. Quite frankly, my friends, we do this with our own president. And we should be ashamed of ourselves. Oh, but don't you know the terrible things he does? That's fine. Is God not on his throne? Does God not love us more than anything in the world? Has he not promised he'll take care of us? The last thing I ever want to see is a forward hating the man that God has put in our, in our place of leadership. And you say, Tim, are you a Democrat? I'm a Christian. And we need to be careful because this stuff comes out and we start thinking we're fighting God's war. If God wanted to fight a war, God wouldn't have allowed that man to be in office. Comprehend that? If he needed you to fight him, then you know what? He would have put it in his word. Instead of loving your enemies, go fight them and kill them. It's not what he says, my friends. The world will hate us, and the only thing that God wants from us is love. And until we get that, notice what the text says. No murderer has eternal life in him. So what do we do? Number three, we need to remember the, love, the Lord of love. He moves on, and i got to get going here. How do we know what love is? How do we know the difference between hatred and this love? He tells us in verse 16, this is, I love John, this is how we know what love is. You want to love? Here's the example. Here it is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. It's as simple as that. How, what is love? Love is Jesus Christ. What does it look like? Write these down. The love that the Lord showed us. The life of Jesus Christ, first of all, was a proper expression of love. It was the proper expression of love, and he expresses it in two ways. Two ways, not one, two. Number one, it was voluntarily laid down. It was voluntary. He laid down his life. What it means is Jesus laid laid down his life and all the prerogatives and preferences that he had. He laid down his life and it de-emphasizes his own needs. This idea of laying down his life in a voluntary way takes the focus off of his desires and his wants. And it's a love that changes its plans. It's a love that's willing to do whatever is needed to be done. It's a love that sticks its neck out. It's a love that does it without a fight or a whimper. The phrase laid down literally means to place oneself in a passive posture. Jesus Christ said, you know what? I'm God. I know it. I've lived it. I've been worshipped for it. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so he loved, taking on the very nature of a servant He humbled himself to become obedient, even in obedience to the death on the cross. He laid down his life. That's the first aspect of the expression. Number two, he did it in a vicarious way. We've looked at what he did. But why did he do it? It says, Jesus doesn't just say Christ, Jesus laid down his life. 
Why did he do that? Well, that's a part of his personality. That's what, that's what God men do. They lay down their life. And so what, what is Jesus in that posture? I don't know. That's just what they do. He came from heaven, and that's what heavenly people do. No, it tells us why. It says that he laid down his life. Help me out. Give me the word. For who? Let's mean it. For who? He came. He left everything in heaven for you and for me. He died for you. This is the great understanding of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross that we have, hey, not on this cross, but on a cross long ago, hung on there, bled blood. Why? To die for Tim Bedal. And instead of me hanging on that cross, he is the substitute that makes my, pen, my payment for sin to take away the penalty of death. He personifies what real love is. He showed this kind of love that was lavished upon us when he was laughing with his friends, when he was teaching the multitudes, when he was forgiving sin, when he was healing, and when he was even hanging on the cross, he told his father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. He lived out love from the beginning to the very end. And what did the world do? They hated him. John's gospel, the biggest part of John's gospel is the period of confrontation, scholars call it. And it's this time of agitation that the leaders and priests had against Jesus Christ. The more Jesus did good, the more they hated him. The more they shook their fists at him. He personifies love and they hang him on a cross. What an expression of love he has shown us. Notice he's an example. Look at what the text says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And notice what he says. I didn't just do this just to show you how great I am. But as an example, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Go back. It should be voluntary. You should lay yourself down. It means giving up your prerogatives and your preferences. It it de-emphasizes your needs. It takes the focus off of you. It, it, It then moves and changes its plans to meet the needs around them. It's willing to do whatever is asked or whatever is needed. It's willing to stick its neck out and it does it without a whimper. And who does it do it for? Others. This is the life that Christ has called us to, to lay down our lives for others. If you think Sunday a church is just a Sunday morning appointment, you've missed the whole thesis of Christianity. Because of what Christ has done for us, we ought to do the same. The Apostle Paul says that because of Christ's love, it now compels us to be God's ambassadors. And it's amazing that that is written in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And what is articulated right before that is that we are treasures in jars of clay. That we are persecuted and beaten down. We're perplexed but not destroyed. Amidst all that tribulation and all that struggle, Paul says, but it is the love of Christ that keeps forcing us and pushing us and compelling us to love as he did. Even when the world hates us. What an example. Just as Cain showed the example of his father, the devil, by slaying his brother, so we live out the example that our Father in heaven has shown us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You want to know if you're a child of the devil? 
do you hate? Do you want to know if you're a child of God? Do you love? That's the test. Finally, we need to respond with a life of love. In Romans 5, 5, write that passage down. Romans 5, 5, it literally says that God has poured his love into our hearts. This love that he's asking for us, this higher love that he wants to bring us, has been poured into your heart at the moment of regeneration in your life. And it is that love of Christ that will not separate us when we sin. It is that love of Christ that allows us to look at great injustices in our life and to extend forgiveness, love, and mercy just as our God in heaven did. No matter what we face, we're a lover to all. Now what does this do? There's an internal part and an external part and then we'll close our time. The internal part we see comes uh, in verse 17. I'm sorry, go back to verse 14. Verse 14 is the internal part because we are given our assurance of salvation. When we respond with a life of love, it is one of our assurances that we're saved. Notice verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Then do the test. What level of hatred is a part of your life? What hurtful things do you say? What evil thoughts do you think in regards to another? How filled are you with anger because of what other people do? Do you wish harm even in a joking matter when it comes to another brother or sister? Do you speak harshly of people? Or maybe even are you just indifferent to the needs of those around you? If that is a characteristic of who you are, then you've got to wonder and you have to ask the question, am I then a murderer, as John says? Or am I a follower of Jesus Christ? So when you see someone begging on the street, are you quick to blame them and say, well, it must be their problem, the reason that they're in this dilemma. They must have done something wrong to find themselves in this place. Are you willing to give? Are you willing to love, to judge without knowing? Do you go and look for ways to help others? John says, be careful. That if we are filled with even a new, uh, just a small amount of hatred, that left unchecked, it will move even farther. While we'll never be perfect in this love thing, the question that we must ask is, is it growing? Is our love growing as our relationship with Christ is? Finally, there's an external part, and that involves action and sacrifice. Love is not spoken about in word, but in deed. Notice what the text says in verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in the truth. Here's the case study. Someone is lacking and you have plenty. Are you open to giving? Don't come up with reasons why you're not, because in that there's indifference, which comes from hatred. When you see a need, are you willing to help? Now, we know that there's a part of us. We don't have all the money in the world. But as God reveals opportunities to you, are you giving out of what you have? It says that if anyone has material possessions, we all have material possessions. And does our brother have need? If we don't show pity, how can God's love be in us? That's a question we must ask. 
Are you quick to abandon your place to meet the needs of others? This means we must move. We must be active in accomplishing it. But it also takes risk. Oh, to help and to love others, it's risky. I'll tell you, one of the most risky relationships I'm in right now is the love I have for Amanda. And likewise, it is risky for her because we've laid ourselves out for one another. We've committed our lives to one another, but what happens if she fails me? What happens if she gets eyes for another and she leaves me? It's risky to love. It means sacrificing and saying, you know what? I love Amanda so much that if that means that I have to give up some things, I'm willing to do so. And that means I'm willing to risk everything in this world, in the human speaking, to meet the needs of her, even if it means that she doesn't reciprocate that to me. Like it, it, likewise, it is true as we love others. It's going to take risk. It's going to take sacrifice. And John says, don't just talk about this. We as Christians do a great job of talking. But it says, let us do it in deed and in action. I believe we're a loving church. But when was the last time you showed love to someone around you? Not a brotherly love or a natural love, but an agape love, a love that sacrifices. When have you taken a couple of your moments of your busy schedule to share a note of encouragement with someone? When have you taken a portion of what you make each week and given it to give financial relief to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are without work? When was the last time we as a people offered gifts that God has endowed us with? To help others who are burdened. Couples, when was the last time you showed love and sacrifice in your marital relationship with one another? How have you loved your kids, parents? Kids, how have you shown parents your love? I want to give you an assignment and we're closing. And this is it. I want you to think about this week one way. One way, not five, not ten. One way that you can show agape love to the world around you. And it may be the person sitting next to you, loving and sacrificing in a way that you haven't for a long time. It may mean to the people that are in this room and doing it because they're a part of the Christian fellowship. Or maybe it is helping someone outside of the body of Christ. Three things come to love when it comes to love. You see a need, you heed the call, and you do the deed. That's what it's all about. Let us love not in word or in tongues, but with action. My favorite band, I know you'll get mad, is a group called Hootie and the Blowfish. And they sing a song, and they don't mean it this way, but I'm going to take it this way, and that's what I have as a right of a listener. They sing a song called One Love, and they finish the song with this. One love might make a difference, might take the walls and tear them down. One light might keep on shining if we take one love and we spread it around. Oh, if we as Christians would live that out with the agape love God has given, the difference this world would see. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, I pray that we would not be people who just uh, talk about love, but that we would live it out. Lord, give us opportunities that we may serve one another, that we may love one another to the point of sacrifice that we would love our neighbors to the point of action. Oh, Lord, that this would be characteristic of who we are and what we're all about. 
So Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that the moment we get up and say our amens, that we would get up with a heart for love to look to the person next to us and show them love. But Lord, love is deep. Love means taking time. And so Lord, I pray that every conversation and every uh, word that is shared would be saturated with this love. That as we leave this place, we would be transformed by the love of Jesus Christ, which now compels us to love one another. Lord, thank you for First John. We thank you for the Apostle John and you working by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit to share with us this incredible lesson on love. Give us the love by your Holy Spirit. It's only through your Spirit that we can live this life. In Christ's name we pray.